Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Creative Control with Beach Comic. On the program today, Nicholas Ruddick of Guelph, Ontario. He's an award-winning poet and author, and he's also a doctor. He's a doctor here in Guelph, which is cool. He came to writing rather late in life and has been acclaimed and, uh, you know, feted for it. His uh, novel, The Parabolist, came out in 2010. It was shortlisted for the Toronto Book Award. And his newest work is like a novel. It's a, it's a collection of linked stories called How Lavetta Got Her Baby. It's set in Newfoundland, and it's very funny and, and dark and interesting and fascinating, and I, I really enjoyed it. And he's appearing at the 2014 Eden Mills Writers Festival on September 14th. So uh, we met and had a conversation about how Lavetta got her baby and being a doctor and a whole bunch of other stuff, too. So here it is, myself and Dr. Nicholas Ruddick. Writers Festival is gearing up for its 2014 program, which runs September 11th to 15th, both in the city of Guelph and just 10 minutes east in the beautiful village of Eden Mills. Confirmed authors and musicians include Eleanor Catton, Lynn Cody, David Adam Richards, Miriam Taves, Anne Michaels, Heather O'Neill, Terry Fallis, Scott Merritt, Sandro Perry, Sean Michaels, Carl Wilson, and many more. There's also the 100 Story Wood Workshop, which unites Canadian authors and high school students for a day of writing on Monday, September 15th. For more information about the physical accessibility of our venues and to purchase tickets or sign up for workshops, please visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca. Nick, uh, it's a pleasure to get to speak with you today uh, here in Guelph. Are you from here? 
No, I was uh, born in Ottawa near the end of the war, and my parents then moved helter-skelter to Hamilton and Toronto, losing all the family possessions on the way in a gambling event, which I, w- which I won't get into. Um, and then we, but we, we ended up in Toronto, and um, where my father was a professor of French at uh, Trinity College. Oh, okay. So I, and I went to school in Toronto, in downtown Toronto, uh, in the same place for 13 years, pretty much the same place for 13 years. So I wasn't very adventurous then. My life was very placid. You, you went to the same school for 13 years? Is that what you just said? Basically, the University of Toronto, and it had a high school associated with it, the University of Toronto Schools. Oh, okay. So I started there in grade seven, and I went, that would have been seven years in high school, and then six years at university. Oh, okay, I see. And what was your, uh, what was your, what was your study in uh, university? Medicine. Medicine. Yeah. Now, this is interesting to me. I was looking at your book, your latest book here, which is in my hands, and I was looking at your, you know, about the author thing. Right. No mention of you being a doctor or, or having any kind oh, of medical background. Right? I, oh, there's nothing in there at all? I don't believe so. Oh, okay. Well, it wasn't, it wasn't done purposely, but um, I think after the first novel, maybe The Parabolist, um, I, I was kind of labeled slightly as a doctor writer, which um, um, I would rather just be a writer under these circumstances, sort of. Right, so you're not, you're not downplaying it necessarily. No, I'm not. Da- I'm not downplaying it as a life because it's a great life, but, but um, it doesn't seem to. Um, it, it doesn't carry quite the same panache as just being a writer in my mind. Right. Although I'm sure others would disagree. So uh, what? But kind I of, didn't. But that, I didn't even know that. So you're telling me something I never noticed. I just looked at the back and I was like, it doesn't mention yeah. anything about. My official bio certainly identifies me as a right. doctor and okay. writer. Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure you weren't hiding your... No, no. This no. isn't like a secret identity. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. I mean, it's yeah. a, you, this might be your super, superhero yeah. identity, Nicholas Reddick. could Reddick's be. Writer, yeah. That's right. So what kind of medicine do you practice? General practice. So general practice, uh, how has that, uh, that work uh, colored your, your writing? Um, I'd like to think it doesn't... Re- it hasn't had a lot to do with this book in particular, right. but um, it certainly has affected my original, my first novel. But um, I would say that I, I was writing long before I went into medicine. And I, in fact, after I finished medicine, the course at university, I took a year off to try to be a writer. Right. But at that time, I didn't find I had anything to write about. Uh, so I slipped back gratefully into the medical fold and carried on with that life quite happily and continued to do so. But um, I've not been writing a lot about medicine, uh, certainly not in these stories. It's, in, it's interesting that you mentioned that, because one of the f- last stories in, in how Lavetta got her baby is one of a young boy who was born with a weak left eye. Yes. And it's, uh, what is it, it's like a cross-eyed thing? Yeah, like strabismus or a wandering eye, yeah. Right, so... I'm reading the story, and the the, the basis. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the story essentially is this kid. He's born with this bad eye, and the, the optometrist that his family takes him to tells uh, the parents he's got to wear an eye patch. True to strengthen the weak eye. As right. I'm reading this, I have a weak left eye. As yeah. I'm reading your book in bed, I grab a Kleenex. I'm like, that's a great idea. <laughs> I cover my right eye and yeah. try to read the rest of the story with just my left blurry vision. Like yeah. I was wearing my glasses yeah. still can't see a thing my eyes are are messed well, but it made if, me if, think if, of that if you're if you're a young child and you have strabismus or a weak eye or a wandering eye you gradually suppress the vision in that and you lose the vision oh which is the reason that you wear a patch on the good eye when you're young if and it sometimes will help you preserve that vision 
Right, and that's right. Would it be of any use to me as an adult? No, no. I, I have the same thing. I, oh, okay. I still do. If I get tired, it wanders out a bit, and one of my daughters has it. It's just a nice family kind of quirk, <laughs> and it hasn't affected my vision significantly, but okay. it can, and that's why theoretically there's operative procedures that are sometimes done or misdone. Um, I can't remember if I mentioned it. It's like, I think I mentioned in the story, it's about like cutting the legs off a kitchen table to balance it. You might overcorrect it and it, right. looks, it looks worse. You're trying to strengthen yeah. both. The, yeah. Both of them. Okay. Yeah. So, th- I mean, this to me seems medically well, that's true. influenced. <laughs> and, there's, and there's a medical uh, scene, I think, in there... Uh, for there's a couple suffering from infertility and they go in for a physical examination right. for infertility and right. um, sure there's some medical so stuff so it comes up from time to time yeah. right right now the other uh, interesting aspect for this uh, of this story of this book rather is that it's a series of short stories but they all are essentially connected they're not all connected but there are passing connections I, i've described it as sort of a shady night dance floor in which couples appear and bang into each other a little bit and get banged around and then disappear and then later on you'll bump into them again right but they're not it's not a strong connection but there's a similar feeling to it and a sort of similar kind of romantic things going on and so i think the dance floor analogy is sort of a vague connection they're they're not they're called linked short stories linked short stories but they're not linked like sausages no no that's right but some characters will recur yeah some storylines will recur uh there's there's the studley uh is it andrew andrew aaron aaron studley pardon me (laughs) that's okay there's there's aaron studley he seems to pop up quite a bit i had to change his name from what it originally was because the real guy with the original name didn't want to be in a book he's based on a real person well, just the names are the names. Oh, the names. The, the are. names are sort of come from the south coast of Newfoundland, uh, where I worked. And yeah, this is know. what I wanted to ask you about. I mean, I want to get into this interconnection thing uh, a bit more. But I spent a fair amount of time in St. John's. They, oh, yeah, they asked me back yeah. uh, every year to. Work, I, I host the Lanya Vanya yeah, Arts yeah, Festival. Yeah, yeah. Right. so that I go back from time to time, and I really enjoy it, and I've gotten to know it quite a bit. It was really nice for me to read your book. Your, your, this book is uh, these stories, however linked they are, essentially all mostly set in that area. They're mostly set in St. John's or a sort of an imaginary place south of that. Okay, down the southern, down the or up, what they'll say, up the southern shore, which is down there to the south. Okay, and also even in a more remote area of the of the province, which is called the South Coast in Fortune Bay. Right, and what's your connection to that? Place. Uh, when I went out to Newfoundland originally in the early 70s, I was the I did my internship there, and then I did a bit of a medical residency, um, but then I quit that and I became district medical officer for uh, Fortune Bay Hermitage area, which is at that time was seven or eight little towns connected by boats, and I did the the boat and clinic um, duties for a district medical officer for several years oh, working wow. working by myself but I and, and at that time um, I was incapable of taking care of myself I was only 25 and um, I was pretty much adopted by a Newfoundland family and I had all my meals with them and he was the singer in the band and it became quite the uh, a wonderful experience in every way was he a singer in a band we would know oh no no local no, band no, no. just no no a local band Singing, but they for the first time I was exposed to really like traditional songs, okay, accordions, 
Tell fiddles. me, tell me about uh, your experience coming to Newfoundland. What was that like? Where did you you would have come well, from Toronto? I came from Toronto. Yeah, I yeah. got on. I got on. Everybody else was going west at that time. Um, and that was in the seventies or the late sixties, and um, I decided I would go east in a contrary kind of way, and I landed is, is there. That, is that part of your character to be a little? Well, it was at the time. <laughs> it's not now. <laughs> no, at 20- I'm thoroughly domesticated. <laughs> but, I, but at the time, I, I wanted to do different things, which so I didn't go. I didn't, you know, I took a year off to try to be the writer, and then I rather than go somewhere, I went somewhere where. I didn't think anybody else from Toronto had ever been. Um, Among the most remote places in this country in a lot yeah. of ways, yeah. Well, uh, where I eventually ended up is super remote even for Newfoundland. Oh, okay. But um, anyway, I, I did go there and arriving on the airplane and getting off and within 10 minutes being in a in Middle Cove, which features in some of those stories, and the waves pounding in and lashing up against the cliffs, it's quite an extraordinary extraordinary difference to pounding the pavement in Toronto mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I found it very liberating and I I loved uh, really everything about it so it's, for me it was an I felt I was quite a shy and retiring person right before that before that this yeah. this Newfoundland opened it, your eyes to the it helped, world it helped me a lot right um, and it became a very very important part of my life so when I decades later really started to write for public uh, consumption it was the Newfoundland experience came to me most directly and allowed me to get going so what uh, what uh, how long did you live there I think for a total it was probably only about four years but um, nevertheless at that time and at that age it was uh, one of those epical moments one has right okay so you live there four years and, and how often do you go back oh we're back couple of times a year a couple of times a year yeah yeah so just and we were going to move back like so many people do but once you've been in guelph and you have your kids and um you know how it is yeah but hundreds it's not hundreds but dozens of people just move there and pack up and leave once they've gone there for a holiday right you said you've been there for how many years doing i've gone uh, three years yeah, yeah and i love so, it yeah you might be the next to go I like it very much. They seem that people are nice. People seem. I mean, it's always a weird thing when you go to a town for a festival because yeah. you have a totally different. That's my association with that place. Yeah. And to be there any other time of the year might be like, where's what's happening? What's going on? But there does seem to be a lot going on there. Oh, oh, there is. And they, and my wife says too, she's an artist. Um, they they do respect writers and artists and musicians a lot yeah. more than you'll get here. Yeah. No, it's a lovely place. So so, so I wouldn't be surprised if you actually go. Uh, but I'm not trying to encourage Are you. Are you daring me to move to Newfoundland? <laughs> it kind of seems like... No, no, no. I just seem that there, there's, like, there's many, many writers and poets and musicians who just seem to up and go there. Yeah. And I can see that. I can it's, see it. It's, it's nice a, to have a job, too, of course. Yes, that's the main thing these yeah. days, is having yeah. a job. So I'm, The woman I'm reading with at Eden Mills, Elizabeth DeMariaffe, she used to live in Guelph and she lives there she lives there now along with George Murray who's also I think reading at Eden Mills that's correct so yeah but they're just a they're a drop in the bucket compared to I mean there's a lot of other writers and musicians and artists who have gone there stayed or gone there come back and still think about it and write and paint about it or something so well you clearly have an affection for the for the place because uh, these linked stories all take place there what do you? Tr- what were you trying to convey about this place in this book? And furthermore, you know, what is your? You clearly, uh, we've already established you're very affectionate towards it. But what is? I'm curious. Newfoundland's an interesting place because I think people have a perception of it 
that doesn't quite make sense when you get there. Um, I feel like of all the provinces, people, you know, it's the butt of jokes. People, and I think that Newfoundlanders, if I may generalize, kind of roll with that. You know, I think they're like, yeah, well, if that's what you think. Whatever. I don't like. They don't seem to care. But well, I, yeah, what's your I, what's your what's your take on that? Uh, I don't think it's the butt of jokes anymore. I, it, there was a time, I suppose, that it was, mm-hmm. and I think they do care. Um, they're certainly not. They're, they're just the, the funniest and the warmest and the most self-deprecating people in Canada. Yeah. I feel the further west you go, the more and more serious it gets and the more depressing. <laughs> so uh, here in Ontario, we're still pretty good. Yeah. But by the time you get out to British Columbia, you would just want to turn around and come home. Right. Um, Newfoundland is, uh, and the people are, that I stayed with are just warm and kind and funny. They're funny. They're very funny. Right. They like to laugh. Right. And, and they, they talk fast. Uh, they're interesting. You can get in a conversation with anybody. And you can have a great time, right? So, I, I, that's that's why I liked it, and and um, the the stories in the book are set there, but I, I don't think they're really have to be Newfoundland stories. I, I set them in Mississauga. I think uh, it could have been just the same, right? But you made this decision to set because some of the the, the characters are very colorful. The stories are really amazing. Um, are they inspired by things that happened in Newfoundland, or are you just happen no, to no, set it there? No, no, these are really fictional. Uh, fictional. I, I mean, I there's one story in there where some people go down to a place where there's some 600 million year old fossils, and they try to cut them out with a chainsaw and stuff like that. I mean, I I went there and I saw the fossils, and I was the one who thought about cutting them out with a chainsaw, <laughs> but um, it certainly wasn't Newfoundlanders who thought about that. Okay. Okay. And although there are a lot of bizarre things happening in the book, um, if you were to if you were familiar with my novel set in Toronto, the bizarre things that happen in that are far more um, off the wall than the ones that happened there in Newfoundland. Right. Now you you've, you're coming off of writing a novel. Uh, these, as we established, are linked stories. What 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 made you choose that as a structure? Having these short. I mean, because oh, I got I got so much material that. I, I was not advised to publish a book of short stories. I see. Because by, except by Breakwater, who I am grateful <laughs> for. But the world at large will not suggest a novelist write a bunch of short stories as a follow-up. But I, I have so many stories. Like, like that's half the stories I have. And right. I have so. But the structure of this, as we discussed, the link begs the question, why not just form this, write this as chapters in a oh, I see. larger story? Um, well, good question. I... As you can see, like half, almost half the stories in there are only one sentence long. So we'll cast those aside because sure. they're not uh, part and parcel of the linked stories. Right. But the linked stories themselves are all unique, and I, 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 I couldn't, I don't think, force them together. They were written as short stories. And um, actually, um, my next novel, which is set in St. John's, um, oh, wow. called Night Ambulance, there, there's two stories that I have published called... Um, what were they called? Oh, yeah, Butterpot and After Butterpot, which I've held out of that book because I took two of those short stories as the nidus for the next novel. And so um, the novel is written from a short story. Right. And but, that, I, but I couldn't jam those guys together. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't make sense in here. No. no. I mean, yeah. I guess it's a thought. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I, I, it begs the question of just in terms of your practice. Yeah. When does uh, one of these short stories become the kernel for something larger? Yeah. And when do you know that it's contained, that it's enough uh, right. in that short short right. span? I was just, um, I started out writing either poetry or one sentence short stories. And then I, nev- I never knew, could I write a short story? 
So I sat down and I thought, God, I don't think so. Um, most I've written is 200 words. Is it possible to write something of 2,000? Yeah. And really, I didn't think I could. But as it turns out, it wasn't all that hard. And, you know, I, I, three or four of them quickly won prizes in literary magazines and things like that. So that gave me the courage to even think beyond the short story. And um, But short stories are fun because uh, you can do them relatively quickly. Um, the amount of time you invest in them is short and, and it's, it's pretty interesting. It's not the, you know, you can struggle sometimes with novels and mm. as to where to go next or... Um, although I haven't done a lot of struggling, I've done enough that I, <laughs> if I could, I like the short story. Tell me about this obstacle. This, you mentioned courage. And for so many writers, there's so many people who are established writers that say things like, I don't understand these people who say they want to be writers. If you're going to be a writer, write. But you seem to have gone through a process where you needed that encouragement. You needed that sense that this is something you were capable of. You were writing... I think potentially out of modesty, one sentence short, short stories, right? Somehow something within you blossomed where you were like, no, I, I can write 2,000 words actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, can you talk about that moment or that it, time? It started really with my daughters in university. When they were in university, we were exchanging sentences by email from great writers or writers we respected. So they would send me something and we called it sentence of the week. We just trade it back and forth and include a few friends, and they'd be sentences by Napal or Sebald or Joyce or Beckett or something. So I gradually started to think, well, for sentence of the week, maybe I'll write something myself. And I think that got me going on a couple of the short ones in there, like yeah. um, Squid and Sculpin, which are Newfoundland-based stories. And uh, then my wife one day saw a ad in the paper for the poetry contest at the Fiddlehead magazine and it was advertised in the Globe so I said well I'll send them in they're written as short stories but I'll send them in as poems and much to my shock it won first or second prize you know in the Fiddlehead contest and so I did it again for the Antigonish review and again I won a prize and, um, I realized they weren't really poems but they were accepted as poems hmm. so it sort of went it started from there um, the I always felt I had the skill to write I just needed a subject. Okay, and that external push? It, it more from my, from my family and from myself. The fact that I, I wanted always to be a writer. I love the feeling I get when I'm reading a book. I like being swept away by somebody else's imagination, and I suppose if I could do that for someone else, even in a small way, I mean, it's very attractive. The same way someone watching a guitarist might want to play the guitar. Some people might be envious of you in terms of your abilities as a, a medical practitioner. You know, to have that gift, that, that's a calling, right? That's a gift. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've, you've got that and you've got this. What, what are you hogging up all the good stuff no, no. here? No, I, I'm lucky to be a doctor. I think when I, went, when I went through medicine, I had more the attitude of a kid in the 60s who would rather be doing something else and trying to be a writer. And I mean, I wrote stuff in university, and it was sort of put on at Hart House as part of the medical show and things like that. It was all very funny, sort of a comedian. And a lot of these stories sort of start out as sketch comedy in a way. Yeah. It's um, something I always wanted to do. And I, the medicine, um, it always felt relatively foreign to me, actually, until I actually got into it as a practitioner. Mm. And once I got into it as a practitioner, it just totally changed. And then it became something you love and something that's really important and something you really dedicate yourself to. But in my student years, I hate to say I was not like that. What were you like? <laughs> um, 
I think if you if I could give you a copy of my novel, and if you read it, you you'll find it. There's a sort of a pastiche of what I was like then. It's oh, set, yeah? It is set in a medical school. Okay. Yeah. So I'll, I'll leave you a copy. Okay, I appreciate <laughs> that. Her, if you ever get her, I appreciate that. No, I'm, yeah, I, was, I, I was not. I was not a. I, I I wasn't. I was much more interested in English literature. I always was in writing and stuff like that. So I, I did sort of the minimum. Is this uh, program going to be broadcasting well for my patients? Are <laughs> yes, it is. It is actually. Yeah, well, they uh, all anyway. Um, my life changed a lot when I got um, after after uh, Newfoundland. We ended up in the Yukon, and then in McGill, where I did some extra training and stuff. And oh, wow. anyways, by the time I got to Guelph, I was ready to be a full time doctor. What drew you to Guelph? Just work, or I beg your pardon. What actually drew you to Guelph? Was it work? Um, well, we expected after going to McGill to do extra training that we would go back to a remote place. Hmm. Um, so I did anesthesia, something that's a useful subspecialty in the remote area. Um, but having then got a taste of civilization in Montreal, um, my wife and I decided to look around in Ontario, someplace near our parents. She's from Detroit. Oh, okay. And um, we then looked around and we had a interview with a doctor in Durham, which is just north of here. And when we got there, the guy was absolutely crazy. He had a parrot on his shoulder and the parrot, he'd speak to the parrot and the parrot would speak to me. We decided we would pass on that. <laughs> you met a pirate, basically. Yeah, basically. Wow. I don't know who he was, but he was interesting. And anyway, the next ad we looked at was from Guelph, and we came down here and figuring we'd be here for the usual six months or two years of our lives. And um, by the time those two years had come up, we'd had two chil- two more children, and uh, so we were here for good. Okay. Now, there's a lot of black humor in this book, uh, in your writing, I think. There's... there's you have an... <laughs> An interesting relationship with death on some level. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the botulism story in particular, yeah, which yeah. is framed, it's a terribly sad story, but it's framed in a kind of humorous way. Yeah. And uh, it begs a question, I suppose. I mean, I don't know much about doctors. I know that it's, it seems like a lot of work. It seems like uh, a lot of stress. Do you guys have fun with the, the, the role you've been given in life? Yeah, I, I would say... Um, Lives it, hanging in the balance? like that's Personally, I, I was never stressed by it. I mean, I had great family support. I was never... I mean, we worked hard and things like that, but I... And death is a big subject to me, but I don't think it has anything to do with medicine, really. Uh, hmm. Although, certainly, we have to deal with it a lot in our practice here because we do a lot of palliative care. My, right. w- one, of my son, one of my sons has now joined me in the practice, so... And that allows me to have more time off to do to to write these either forgettable uh, short stories or forgettable novels or quite good novels depending on your point of view. Yeah. yeah. But is there like a fraternity among doctors? Is there like a kind of humor? Like, do you find yourselves joking around yeah. with doctors in a way that you don't with other people? Yeah. You really have to read my novel, The Parabolist, to know what my life in medical you school can tell, was like. You can tell I haven't read your your novel. <clears throat> no, I can tell. I don't blame you either. Um, <laughs> it was nominated for, or shortlisted for the Toronto Book Award. So okay. It, so it, it did okay. It did well, yeah. Yeah. But, I just haven't, um, I haven't but it's, it um, The whole life in medical school at that time, it, was, uh, it wasn't all medicine by any means. There were people interested in arts and literature and music and there were ballerinas and there were concert pianists and all of them going into medicine. I guess their parents, um, you know, the usual thing, the kids will have an interest very strong as they're teenagers and as reality hits, they start going into something at which they can probably make a living and their parents are probably 
back in the kitchen saying, "Thank God they went into medicine." Whereas, uh, but they were they weren't all ordinary, driven, scientific people by any means. You you chose a practical path, even though I mean you seem to have had at least two callings. You've done very well as a writer, uh, but that obviously of the two paths you're currently that I'm aware of. This was not the practical path. Uh, going into writing, medicine was clearly no. no but I, I, I didn't. I mean, I didn't truly think of it as a practical path. I, mean, I didn't have anything to say when I was trying to be it, and I obviously I wasn't making any money. So I worked at a button factory then on Spadina Avenue. Hmm. The, the choice was quite plain to me that I should go back into what I was trained for, and in actual fact, what I was trained for ended up being valuable. I mean, every, everything I have in life, uh, my family. Uh, my knowledge of people, everything springs from doing what I should do, not from doing what I wish I would do. Okay. And you mentioned that uh, Toronto, uh, Newfoundland is, is full of funny people. In your experience, is Toronto, Toronto and Guelph seem serious to me. Well, they're more serious than Newfoundland, but they're less serious than British Columbia, as I said. You, gotta, you, yeah. you think British, I get the, people think of British Columbia as this laid back kind of place. You, you view it as very serious. Well, I've, yeah, I, I felt the people I met there were very self-satisfied, like they'd found the perfect place to live, and uh, <laughs> they had a sort of, they're better, they're, you know, they're better than we are, which is the last thing you'll hear from the East Coast. I kind of have the, I agree with you, yeah. I, I, I don't want to insult anyone listening from those areas, but I, when I, the last time, one of the last times I was in British Columbia, no, I was on a tour, and we, so uh, when you're on a tour of any kind, you do book tours, right? Yeah. Yeah. When you're on a tour and you're going through the different places, you, you're only there for a short period, but you do get a real sense of the place and the people. And I remember having this conversation in BC, there's something here. I can't figure it out, but I don't think that these people are particularly happy. And I, I think that's self-satisfaction. There's like a chip on the shoulder. They, they feel like they're, they're better than us. And it's nice <laughs> well, to hear have, someone else articulate that. They got the mountains. They're always they going have, on about the mountains. They've chosen a very, very beautiful place to live that has so many things going for it. And I, I think that um, those who are left behind may, might appear as unfortunate to them. Yeah. Okay. But I, you know, as one who chose not to go there, um, I'm happy. I like the bad weather. I like the rain and the wind and the sleet. And I, I like the... Slipping on ice, I've always, so it doesn't bother me. <laughs> I think they have a bit of that out there. Uh, no, yeah, they do, I guess, in a few northern... <laughs> well, we, I lived in the Yukon for two years, too. That's why I know about British Columbia. So I, uh, my wife and I moved to north of Dawson City for two years after, Montre- after we lived in Montreal. That was our... F- One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a It's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
first medical job together. Hmm. And um, <clears throat> uh, so we would watch the news every night from British Columbia. I got to know about British Columbia politics and British Columbians. And, right. And I don't get me wrong, like you were about to say, I mean, I the, it's a huge generality to talk yeah, about a sense of would, humor, but yeah. everybody knows that it's fun to be in Newfoundland and everybody knows it's not quite so much fun to be it's in. It's not as much fun to be in right. Vancouver or something. That's what, yeah, That's what I think anyway. Dawson City's lovely though too. It is. The sun doesn't go down. I was there and I, I it was discombobulating. Yeah. But I enjoyed it very much. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful part of this country and I got the impression that I feel like a, I, you're right. Newfoundland isn't as remote as it was. I, can we agree Dawson City? A little bit remote? Not as remote as the south coast of Newfoundland. Dawson City is really a hubbub of activity with yeah. restaurants and things like that. But there seems to be a gratitude to visitors. There, there seems to be like, thank you for coming and visiting oh. and being here. And Yeah, that could be. I haven't been there since 1976. Oh, so okay. It's hard for me to know what it's like now. Uh, you have a book tour hasn't brought you there, eh? No. <laughs> you should go. You should go. Yeah. I was there a few years ago. Yeah, it's yeah. wonderful, yeah. yeah. All right, so, I, I, so you're doing all this traveling and you've... You finally settled here. I'm curious when you mentioned the emails with your was it your daughter in university? Two. I have two daughters. Two daughters. Right. But the emails that you're these one sentence sort of quotes that you right. turn into your own stories. That's really is that the first time you really really sat down to write? Well, no. I, I've been writing in journals, but nothing, and always writing a lot of rhyming couplet sort of poetry, but mostly for fun and just for family consumption. Yeah. For years. But as far as serious writing of that include themes that would be touching or something, yeah, that's the first time. So and that was in about two thousand and two or two thousand and three. Roughly, how old would you have been around then? About ten years younger than I am now, so I would have been <laughs> about fifty nine. Fifty nine. So that's that's coming to it kind of late. Yeah, yeah. And so I mean, it's been a surprise. I mean, though my whole career has been a surprise to me, um, but a pleasant one, and it's one that I've. But I don't find it hard. I haven't had to labor. Um, extraordinarily or be mean or throw people out of my study or ask people to shut up while I'm writing or do any of the things you hear maybe somebody struggling for a living might do. Right. So I've been lucky. Um, I still think that um, the work is, uh, a lot of the work appears, there's a superficiality to some of the situations perhaps in some of the stories and some of the characters and stuff. Uh, and I don't go, and I, I never go into any depth or explain what is going on. Um, but I think that lurking beneath the simple stories, they're sort of like Stephen Leacock or something. There's, there's, there's a lot of depth, and there's some sadness and things uh, mm-hmm. certainly. But um, the stories I think are composed mostly. They're composed of people who have hope for the future. They have supportive friends, and even if they're all screwing up a little bit, um, they always feel there's something positive at the end of the tunnel, which is quite opposite from the uh, the general trend of short stories these days. It's pretty negative. Uh, you, everybody, want, everybody seems to want to write about the most ghastly things that have ever happened to them and their friends. Hmm. And I, although there are some ghastly things that happen in here, uh, nevertheless, people, it seems to me, they're always striving still for something. They haven't given up, and that's where the courage of living comes in. And... Well, I do. I do see that too in my medical practice. Not to compare the two, because, but you see people dealing with difficulties in their lives, and the nobility that they have when they do so, is touching. And I, I think that's what I like to say. That book is about. There's a warmth to it, but there's also a lot of scheming. 
there's at least a few. There's a couple, two or three stories, I believe, where it's just a couple of dudes, usually, I think, plotting and scheming. That's right. Well, those those stories are my dialogue stories. That's which, right, dialogue which, stories. Yeah. Which um, I thought was kind of daring to write dialogue stories, just pure dialogue in which nothing is happening except two unidentified speakers talking. Yeah, it's really interesting, yeah. yeah. And they are... They are uh, scheming, but they're scheming fondly, trying to help somebody out, for the most part. Well, in the house painters, they are. (laughs) There's one about somebody who dies on a canoe trip, and they're scheming just to, they're just scheming for scheming's sake. Right. And there's another one about the rickshaw, and they're they're basically... They're funny. Yeah. They're kind of funny. Yeah, but they're schemes. <laughs> they're yeah, scams. Okay. They are scams. Okay, <laughs> that's true. But at the end, the scam is turned on its head, and the winner comes out pure. Right. Okay. So you. So that I would say is, yeah. And even the scammers, if you're familiar with people scamming, you, they can't possibly. You know, they can't possibly be even taking themselves seriously. Yeah. They're they're just sitting around a coffee shop. Um, letting their brains run off into circles. <laughs> and uh, these, this is total fiction. You haven't, uh, you haven't. Uh, no. no one has brought this to mind. Okay, I was just curious. No. You mentioned Stephen Leacock there. Are do you? Are there particular writers or voices uh, that have inspired your own practice? Well, yeah, not Stephen Leacock. I guess I haven't read him since um, high school. But <clears throat> I, I like uh, mostly. I've read. I've liked serious writers like Chekhov. Well, Chek, you know, they all have. Every serious writer is funny. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like Dostoevsky and I like Chekhov and Sebald. In Canada, I've liked David Adams Richards mm-hmm. and Mordecai Richler. Uh, I like Barbara Gowdy. Um, and reading. I like David Mitchell. David Mitchell. You, yeah. you reading these folks and, and writing. Uh, uh, how, I mean, how often do you write? Do you write every day? Yeah, pretty much every day I'm not working, which would be... So I, I might work five days a week, three or four hours every morning. And then you write the rest of the time. Right. And that's honing your practice. And you're reading all these other folks and they're... Yeah, I like would say... Inspiring yeah, you. I, I should have mentioned Bolaño because um, I, I was writing short stories and little things. And I was... But when I read Roberto Bolaño's Savage Detectives, I then sat down to write my first novel. And I even had a character in there like him. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just took off then, and it, I wrote my first novel like in six months or seven months, and had it finished and accepted, and all of it just like that, bang. So that was, um, which, and I tip my hat to Roberto Bolaño for again releasing me from my handcuffs of, of sort of Anglo um, fear. <laughs> <laughs> Anglo fear is the worst kind of fear, yeah, I know. as I recall. Uh, <laughs> okay, now the baby. Uh, the, the people having babies, where the babies came from, how they got their babies. This is a, a source of interest for you. Comes up a little bit here. Yeah. Right. <laughs> why is that? Uh, why does that fascinate you? The the story of the baby. Um, I don't know. I think I wrote the title story how Lovetta got her baby first, <clears throat> and again that was really started out as just comedy. Because I was just imagining a mother and a teenage daughter. I, I must have had a teenage daughter at the time, um, going out on a date, and you know, imagining what was going on. Yeah. So I think that was the first one, and how she got her baby is just a, the mother's idea of what's going on on her date. Because of course, in the story, she doesn't get her baby at all, but right. so the mother imagines it all. 
Um, this is a this is just so people understand, and we don't want to give too much away. But this is a a mother. Her, her daughter's out on a date with a dude. And the dude's like a, I think he has a motorcycle or no, no, he's got a nice car. Like a, yeah, he's got a Camaro. Got a Camaro of all things. And she, the mother is just going through the scenario in her head where. Right. Well, she asked her to wear jeans in the car. Right. <laughs> where the girl was going out in one of those short Catholic girl skirts. Right. So and right. the mother was quite happy with her daughter going off in jeans. But then as she's sitting in her kitchen smoking and doing the dishes, she's imagining what bad things can happen with jeans that right. might not have happened to a skirt. Right, right. So it takes off from there, and it's really comedy. Um, it is almost pure comedy, that story, because really nothing happens at all except for some sweetness on a first date. Right. And yet there's this alternative story going on, of some ghastly, or not ghastly, but some very overtly sexual activity going on in the mother's mind. Right. But you've also, so that's Lavetta, but you've also that's got Levetta. how Eunice got her baby. Yeah. How Eunice got her baby... <clears throat> is an example of uh, a story that I just threw, or I wrote and I sent out and was rejected by Fiddlehead. And then uh, you're naming the, names. That's well, amazing. I'm coming back to. No, no, it was rejected. <laughs> but the, one of the editors there took it out of the rejection pile and read it and uh, accepted it. So oh. initially, initially rejected, then accepted, and then it was turned into a movie by the Canadian Film Centre with. Uh, sort of some, in a, with a Newfoundland cast and with Gordon Pinsent doing voiceovers and stuff like that. That must, have only, been, that must be remarkable for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. So that was quite remarkable. It's a short film, 16 minutes, and directed by a very good director. But um, they did change the uh, story so much that it's really almost unrecognizably mine. They Americanized it. They had people taking cocaine and shooting people with guns and having sex on top of old Chevrolets and stuff, which um, none of which were in my story. So it did change the tenor of the story. Nevertheless... How, how do you feel about that? Oh, I don't like it, watching it, but everybody's impressed by the fact that I've had a movie made, so it's a, it's a win-lose situation. Sure, you've had a movie made, but B, um, and it was well-made, and the director's very good, but it's part of the Canadian Film Center's school. I think they have to give the script to writers and those writers decided to um, put their mark on it. That's got to be awful. You don't get creative control over, over something oh, no, like no, that. No, Huh? No, I got $50 though. So. $50? Yeah. Oh my. So I've hit, I've hit it in a big way, Hollywood, <laughs> but I appreciate the movie and I like the actors. And um, like I say, it's uh, um, most people I, I'd love, if they want to do another movie. Go ahead. I say, it's a. It's pretty remarkable that you made a. You know, I. Th I would think, as you. I think you alluded to earlier. You know, no one really wanted you to write a collection of short stories after having written a novel, uh, probably precisely for reasons like this: marketability. Yeah. Uh, the fact that uh, filmmakers took it upon themselves to turn a short story into a short film—that's unusual. I have to think. No, I know it's it's quite unusual. I was I was happy. <laughs> a girl just phoned me up out of the blue, and I I was in the office, and I said sure, and we met and. It went away really quickly. Okay. It all happened fast. But they spent a lot of money on it, hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's not cheap, I don't think. Right. So well, it's a very well-produced movie, but and I have, many, I have many copies of it. You have many copies of the movie? Sure. Okay. So the, that's got to be, but I mean, clearly. But if you, if you read the story and then you saw the movie, you would not necessarily connect the two. Yeah. 
That's got to be a drag. Have you gotten into any other kind of screenwriting or, or thoughts about, uh, you know, taking your stories from the page to, the, you know, stage, screen? Um, I've thought about it, but I, um, and I'm sure, I think I could probably do it. And I see a lot of people who sell their work to film, but you don't see many films coming out of them generally, in my experience. They go through a, <clears throat> a bit of a process, and they always get stymied somewhere mm -hmm. through yeah. it, right? That's right. Like, oh, your your film, your book got optioned for a film, and then the film yeah. never gets made. Right. So you're, you're I could my my novel, The Parabolist, could easily be made into a very good movie, but um, it would have to be starring somebody very famous, mm. like Justin Timberlake or somebody. And then it would be made, but he'd be too old for the part, and blah blah blah. <laughs> <laughs> so you're fully uh, acquainted with the way the industry works. Yeah. And my my work is pretty much so far anyway has pretty much um, just it's sort of coming of age stuff. The, all the characters seem to be in their twenties, right, thirties at the most, and uh, so I haven't dealt with any of the problems of my own age or aging. Yeah, why is that? But, why 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 do you suppose that is? Um, I have no idea. I just haven't got to that point yet. So I started I started late, as you pointed out, and um, so I have to get the coming of age stuff off my chest first. I see. Are you then I'll be senile by the time I get to <laughs> aging. <laughs> I won't be able to do it. <laughs> do, do you have uh, guidance when you're trying to write uh, the stories of younger people? Are you are you like talking to your daughters or anybody? No, no. no. no I'm just remembering. They're drawn from kind of your own lived experience. My own feelings, yeah. Yeah. There's a timelessness to these to this book in particular. Yeah. Like I don't really the only problem is there's no texting or phones or music. I've, I've, I'm, I'm sort of setting it in a vacuum. There's no, nobody is singing songs by the Beatles or Bruce Springsteen or any other touchstones. Yeah. Cool. So, and I don't know why that is either, except I don't like reading it in other books, so I'm trying to avoid that. Because it puts the... It seems like an easy way to get the characters, get readers to, in touch by quoting some famous song or something. I've somehow I've, I've avoided it. Right. But so you're very thoughtful about your practice. Like you're thinking about this stuff quite a bit. Well, not really. I don't think I write. <laughs> I don't really think I write very thinkingly. But then I, when I then I start thinking. Well, geez, I never. I could have put in something there about a song. Do I really want to put the guy turning on the car radio and listening to Bruce Springsteen as he's driving up Signal Hill? I don't think so. I think. I'll yeah. Just leave it. Yeah. How have the people of uh, of Newfoundland that uh, have encountered your work? How have they responded to it? Um, very well. I would, I would say that, um, I haven't, they say the book is quirky and some people say it's very, very funny and they're laughing a lot. Yeah. Um, so I have to get my publicist, Elizabeth DeMariaffi, who also is, <laughs> <clears throat> I have to get her to apply for the Leacock award, even though it's a long shot. Right. But, um, um, they've been very good. Mind you, uh, only the ordinary people have read it. I haven't really crashed into the literary community yet. When did this book come out? March. Just this past March. Yeah. My wife attended the book launch here at the E-Bar. Oh, did she? Yeah. Oh, I that's nice. I, wasn't, I think she spoke with you. Yeah. I wasn't able to attend. I apologize. But uh, I, I heard good things. People really enjoyed yeah, the event. Do you, do you enjoy the public presentation? Like, this is a very solitary endeavor, writing a book. Uh, but you're sending it out into the world for some kind of reception. Yeah. Do you enjoy going out into the public? Do you enjoy stuff like this, like talking about your practice? I, I enjoy talking, yeah. And I, <laughs> I enjoy the, and I enjoy the festivals and I, such as they are. Mm -hmm. I don't enjoy sitting around in bookstores very much, like at chapters. Yeah. Why is that a thing? Why do they make the you guys do that? 
Where you just sit there waiting. Well, I don't. Um, uh, it's not something I would aspire to. Hmm. I feel like I'm selling snake oil, and people walking by. Um, it's just not something any ordinary human being would want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I do better selling lottery tickets. <laughs> Probably would do which better. I, which I should do if I'm gonna if I ever do that again. <laughs> <laughs> but I like the personal contact and talking to people who are interested. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there are a lot of people interested. So Yeah. Are you surprised yeah. by the reception to your your work? I mean, you I get the sense that you are self-aware that you're on to something. You're winning awards. Uh, people outside of your immediate family are encouraging you and, and investing uh, time and energy into your work. Uh, are you surprised by that on any level? Well, the awards I'm winning are relatively minor ones, and, and they're here in Canada. There's one in England I've won recently again, and and I just have a work accepted in Ireland in in a issue of Irish Pages, which is a super nice magazine. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're doing an issue on Haney. Um, I, I'm happy with the reception I've I have, but I'm I wouldn't call myself I'm not a success in the sense of a, financially or selling thousands of books or anything like that. But this is not, you don't think of this as a hobby. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm writing serious literature. I don't expect to sell 45,000 copies and 50 shades of orange and stuff like that. I'm not going to do that. But right. I'm, I'm, I'm writing for myself and, my, and the connection that I make with others because we share the same aspirations and the same fears and things like that. I, that's really important to me. But I don't expect everybody to like everything I write because right. I can see that it's a bit different. Right. When's the last time you had uh, an interesting spark of an idea? Oh, pretty much every day I would have an idea of some kind. Yeah. What, what, but I would say that, uh, I was saying to my wife the other day that a lot of the stuff I'm doing now is I'm reworking things that I thought about 10 years ago and there was I like going through, uh, you know, that I wrote at the time and I was, wasn't totally satisfied with and yet there still holds so much promise and now I'm reworking those with a little more skill perhaps. Can you be objective about that? The promise, I mean? Like, have you been like, ah, oh, this feels like something and then do you show it to your wife and then she's like, oh. Yeah, well, no, I usually show her stuff after I've finished. So, but she is the arbiter of my, the final <laughs> arbiter of what's acceptable. Okay. She doesn't let me kill off children, say, in books. You did, the, the, what do you mean? You killed off like a whole soccer team or something in this book. Okay, but that was, um, um, they were adults. Were they? Yeah, they were 18. That's not, okay, that's tech, they're young kids. And, and there is a question at the end of whether they died at all or whether they all woke up. Right, right. So, in a different, I got out of that. Wait a minute. But for instance, if I, I wasn't allowed, like you read and you see on television now, there's hardly a story goes by in which some girl or some... Um, um, child is murdered or left, and, and that's where the whole plot begins. Right. Why is that? I'm not going to do that. That's an easy way at, uh, at tugging at our heartstrings, I think. Seems to be a good way to catch people's interest. Yeah. yeah. I don't understand why that's going yeah. on. All right. So you're, you're constantly, you are, you have a lot of ideas. They're constantly coming towards you. It's just a matter of fleshing them out. Right. And, and where are you at? But I, but I mean, what, some of those might only be a, 40 word sentence or something so do you know pretty soon into the process that this isn't going to be something that's going anywhere or does it take do you labor a lot no i, I would quit if it becomes too much of a problem i would just wouldn't do it huh and, and i, I mean, would like to be I, I had to work a lot lot harder on my second novel than my first and i just it's just been sent out now to breakwater 
Um, the but that did require a lot of revisions and a lot of mistakes that were made by my being too confident because of the re- how easily the first had gone. So I, you know, I, I was I made mistakes. Okay, Your sophomore mistakes. Yeah. Okay. What can you tell us anything about this second novel, uh, even though it's uh, just been well, sent out? Yeah, well, I, I'd written several versions of it that went out to my agent, and she sent it out to all the various places who who turned it um, turned it down, not because of the quality of the work, but I think because um, again, I, I received some fairly good advice or advice that was considered good, not to write about the East Coast and not to write this and not to write that, hmm. and I sort of ignored it all and went back at it, and in fact, I have ignored it all because I have done just that. But I sent in drafts that I think, in retrospect, were um, a bit self-indulgent. So now um, I have uh, written for this next novel, um, one that is uh, um, a bit funnier. It has a positive ending rather than its initial negative ending. And um, (laughs) I love it. And the people who have read it for me um, prefer it, I think, even to the first one. Okay. So we'll see what happens. Maybe nobody will publish it, um, or maybe it will. I mean, I'm I'm pretty sure it will get published, maybe even next year, and then I could go at the Eden Mills again, <laughs> even next year, if I yeah, if I right. if I if I'm acceptable. Right now, you mentioned that uh, some publishers uh, dissuade you from writing about the East Coast. Do you have a perspective on why? Um, maybe it wasn't. Maybe it was short stories about the East Coast. I think that oh, I think they I think that major publishers didn't want me in particular writing short stories about the East Coast. This short stories thing seems to stick in their craw. They don't know what to do with it. Is this a harder thing? This is harder to market, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's harder to market because I mean, the novels are fun. If you can get into a novel, you really sit back and you anticipate four or five days of reading with characters you love. And the short stories you can take piece by piece. And yeah. Um, now, Mavis Gallant says, short story book like this, you should just pick it up and read one story and then put it down and come back a couple of days later or a week later and read another one. Hmm. Um, I've interspersed the longer, shorts, the longer stories there with very short ones. I've noticed that, yeah. And uh, they um, give somebody a break from them anyway, but... Uh, and they have nothing... I, don't, I can't think of an instance where these... They're kind of one page. Yeah. In some cases, one I've sentence... I've been accused of there being poetry. Right. They're little, right. and, and they which have, they are in a way. They, they have nothing to do. Whereas most of the the longer stories are are interconnected in some, at least some vague way. The short stories, the very short stories, almost have nothing to do with. Yeah, they have nothing to do. They're they're sort of suggestive stories, in which the reader is going to have to bring an imagination. If they they don't have to do anything except read them, but they don't um, frame what's to come. No, no, they're just a thing. They're just a a. To me, they're still a short story. Right. They tell about a feeling or a, or a, uh, a vision of something happening or something sexy or something strange. Yeah. Okay. And they'll have to bring their own experience to it, um, but it's there. As, uh, and personally, I think that I, I love every single one of the very, very short ones in there for for their suggestiveness. Yeah. Not for their completion. Right. Okay. They're open-ended in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. So you finished a novel, you've submitted it. What are you working on next? Uh, well, I have another. I've already written about 25 more short stories. 25? Mm-hmm. How many are in this thing? 
25. Now, by the way, I noticed that I've noticed this at the top here. It says stories. It doesn't say short stories. Oh it's, no. Okay. It says yeah. stories. I think that's very deliberate too. Yeah. They did a great job breakwater on the cover. It's the, I like the fire inside the Camaro. There's the Camaro. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, anyway, uh, sorry. I, I feel grateful that, uh, that, uh, breakwater, um, took them on and did such a great job and, published them so quickly and uh, have helped me get it out into the world. Now, these 25 short stories that you're working on now are completed? Completed. Are they also linked? No. They are completely on their own? Yeah, these are, and I mean, a lot of them have been published in various places. Okay. And they're, they're a little more, like this one on Sebald in Guelph, visiting Guelph, and there's Dostoevsky in Montreal and Chekhov in Saskatchewan. and. Oh, so there's a theme. Well, there's a dead writers theme to those. Yeah, they're <laughs> dead, dead writers, dead writers who, have, who have actually shown up in Canada later. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's there is a interconnected. Oh, only the three of them. Okay. The rest of them are completely off the wall. All right. And when when will that be published? I have no idea. I haven't. That I haven't, one, sub, I haven't have to. That. I'm waiting to see what happens with the other book first. So how soon? I'm sure, I'm sure this varies all the time. But how soon after completing a major work, a novel? Uh, a collection of short stories. Do you give yourself a break? Is it possible as a writer to just say, "I'm taking a hiatus or a sabbatical from this practice," or is it just a constant? I think I'd have to do it now because, um, as I'm only working half time in medicine, and then on uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday morning, um, I think that's pretty much what I plan to do. If I didn't do mm. it, I would. Uh, I don't know what I would do. I'd go out and ride my bicycle or something. I'm, I don't want to suggest that you're some kind of renaissance man here, but is there another thing that we don't know that you do? That you got the writing, you got There's the There's a lot medicine? of things I do poorly, like playing the whistle and things. And playing the whistle? What playing the whistle. That's a, a whistle? Like the tin whistle. Oh, the tin whistle. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. It's the phone's ringing in here. <laughs> <laughs> the ghostly phone. The ghostly phone. That might yeah. be our sign to wrap this up. Yeah. But, okay, so you have a musical interest? Um. Yeah, I played recorders and then tin whistles and stuff, but I don't have the confidence to play publicly. Okay. My, my brother, my younger brother, who's also a doctor, he plays guitar and sings very well. And the last time we were in Newfoundland, he got up and actually sang at the Quitty Vitty Brewery. And, uh, oh, nice. But I, I don't have his courage. Okay. So I'm just private whistler. You're sticking with writing amazing stories and uh, practicing medicine. That's it. That's you. Yeah. And you're in Guelph for the foreseeable future. This is your home. Yes. We're, we're here. I didn't even know you. I didn't know. I didn't know that you were here. Yeah. Isn't this well, weird? It's a weird town, right? Um, well, I knew of you because I think my daughters told me that you were prominent in the uh, intellectual community and a driving community force. Oh, well, that's And they signed right. me up to your Twitter account as one of the first people. Uh, you know, I don't know anything about this. <laughs> so I, I've known you longer. Oh, really? Yeah. So you, you follow me on Twitter? Is yeah. that the deal? Okay, I yeah, didn't know yeah, that. Yeah. I'll have to follow you too. That's very kind well, of you your daughters. You don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will. Are you yeah. related to anyone? Do you have anything to do with, uh, who are you related to? Are you related to Cheryl Ruddick? Yeah. She's, she's my wife. She's, she's your a, wife. Yeah. She's an artist. Right. Yeah. And I think, and one of my kids is Jesse Redock, and she's, or Coco Bonaparte. Oh. And I know Jesse very well. Yeah, I didn't yeah. even know this. She's the one who signed me up to your Twitter account. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is quite a, this right. small world. And Nora, to... Nora's around. She's an editor here in town, and 
Um, you might, you probably know her if you saw her. Well, I'm a big fan of Coco Bonaparte, yeah. and I believe I might be mistaken here, but I think we have at least one piece of your wife's art hanging in our house. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah great. Yeah. Well, I think we might have picked it that. up at the Guelph Jazz Festival. Yeah, or yeah, yeah. Like that. That's yeah. quite possible. Yeah. So there you yeah. go. Small world. That's good. <laughs> Well, they'll be glad to know that I'm related or that um, you know them better than me. That's <laughs> <laughs> very funny. Yeah. Well, uh, Nick, this has uh, been a, a great pleasure to speak with you. I want to tell folks that for more information about how uh, Lavetta got her baby, uh, and I always want to say how Lavetta got her baby back. I don't know why. Yeah, well. It's a weird thing. How Lavetta got her baby, they can go to breakwaterbooks.com. Yeah, well, there, you've just given me an idea for a good short story. <laughs> How somebody got their baby back. How they got their baby back. Yeah. There you go. There you go. All I'm right. going to go home and write that down. <laughs> Thank you, Vish. Thank you, Nick. It's been okay. a pleasure. Good luck. Thank you. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H, K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E and you can also like our Facebook page a version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern and you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph you can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.